Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. A few months ago, Emily shared the stories of Tiffany and Danielle, survivors of the jogger rapist Richard Gilmore, who has since been released to a halfway home in downtown Portland. We, along with so many of you listeners, were rightfully outraged. We've yet to hear from newly crowned Governor Tina Kotek whether she plans to change his low-level status. Sadly, a case like his, where the judicial system signs a piece of paper that releases someone that could put the public at risk, happens daily. And in the case of Russell Obrimsky, it happened twice. In today's episode, I'll be sharing the case of Russell Obrimsky, Laverna Lowe, Betty Ritchie, and the systemic failures that added to Russell's list of victims. Sounds like I'm going to be real pissed in a few minutes. You sure are. When I first saw a photo of Russell Obrimsky, it gave me the chills. That rarely happens, but there was something in how he was looking through the camera. His eyes seemed to be literally piercing. And not to make light of things, but he looked like maybe a really, really scary version of Mickey the Convict from Pee-wee's Big Adventure, who was played by Judd Omen. (laughs) So I really don't mean to make a joke of it. It was just what I thought of first. I'm far from the only person to have felt that way when looking at him. The low kids got the same uncomfortable feeling when they met him in person. Unaware they were valid in their unease, it wouldn't be long before Russell's true colors would reveal themselves. Before we can start with the story of Laverna and her children, we have to start with Russell's story. Russell Obrimsky, also known as Obrimsky with an apostrophe, and Russell Raymond Hoover, was born in Nevada in 1945 before his family ended up in Fort Calamath, Oregon. He was considered a sweet kid, 
He was always welcome at the homes of his friends. When he was 10, his mother passed away and he was left to live with his alcoholic and abusive stepfather. The following year, the two moved south to Klamath Falls, located less than 20 miles from the California border. There, Russell was adopted by his grandparents. The 70,000 people who live in Klamath Falls are spread out at just 11 inhabitants per square mile, and that's from the most recent census. When Russell lived there, the population was only 41,000. As a teen, he got involved in the 4-H Sheep Club. By then, Russell was so angry from the abuse he experienced at the hands of his stepfather and the loss of his mother, the kindness of his grandparents was moot. He started to find himself getting into trouble. On the cusp of adulthood, he began having run-ins with the local authorities. In April of 1962, he was charged with larceny after breaking into a school. It's unclear what the outcome was of that arrest. A year later, in April of 1963, Russell was now a legal adult. So when he was charged with taking and using an automobile without authority after crashing his friend's car, his bail was initially set at $3,000. Since this was one of his first offenses, the judge lowered his bail to $1,500. This would be the first of many breaks Russell would be provided by the judicial system. The offense in question was regarding the car owned by William O. Stevenson. William claimed Russell had stolen the car for a joyride before wrecking it. The legal accusations were that Russell took the car without permission. Maybe he had been allowed to use it in the past, but William had intended for those impromptu uses to be due to an emergency or to be work-related, not just wheels that were up for grabs when Russell needed them. Taking the car that day, Russell, another guy, and two gals drove from Warden, a small town right above the California border, to Doris, a town just inside the border. Coming back into Oregon, they ended up three miles north of Warden before losing control of the car and landing in a ditch. Luckily, everyone was okay. Realizing his car was gone for quite some time, William filed a report and Russell was tracked down and arrested. During the trial, Russell testified on his own behalf, admitting that yes, he had taken the car out and about on other occasions, and no, he hadn't been given explicit permission to do so on the day of the accident, but he claimed he had been told he could use the car whenever he needed it, by William. Before closing statements, the state provided five witnesses, the defense had two, the jury took three hours and 27 minutes to find Russell not guilty, another break for the teenager. Which is funny that they had like a whole trial for, that. for a stolen car. Yeah. It's like mm, you stole the car and you crashed it. Well, I think most people would settle, but it sounds like that guy didn't want to give up. And that's probably why. In November of 1965, Russell was now 20 years old and had found himself in Bellingham, Washington. He also found himself in an apartment where he was sharing the company of a 14-year-old girl. Ooh. It's unclear if a concerned parent had reported this or if someone else was aware of the situation, but the police arrived to the apartment and began a search. Russell was arrested and charged with carnal knowledge, which is just a less spicy way of saying statutory rape. Russell was held on $2,000 bail and pleaded not guilty. The first thing his team did once in court was to file a motion saying that the police raid was invalid because a minor was in the home at the time. Uh -huh. So anything they found related to her or Russell was inadmissible. Therefore, they requested suppression of any evidence found at the scene. That motion was obviously denied. This was based on the fact that the crime involved the teenager. So obviously, whatever evidence they had recovered was pertinent to the case. Can you imagine but if good they try. let it go? They're oh, like, yeah, yeah you're, you're, that sounds right. You know what? <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure if, if they were able to file that because it was 
her home. It was the articles were very unclear of the situation. So maybe they were trying to say, like, you broke into her home and she wasn't committing a crime or something. I don't know. But nice try. At some point during pre-trial interviews, Russell had made a confession. The defense again argued that it shouldn't be permitted, but the judge allowed it, informing the jury they would need to make their own decision as to if the confession was valid. It seemed they may have believed it as he was found guilty. A motion for a new trial was filed, but it didn't appear Russell would need one as he was sentenced to 20 years, but was only imprisoned from November of 1965 to February of 1966. Three months. Wow. Another break. That's shorter than his sentence. Substantially, one would say. Hmm. Weird how that works. Why? (laughs) Paroled from the Washington prison, he was sent to Oregon in 1967 to face charges for stealing another vehicle for which he spent a year behind bars. So statutory rape of a 14-year-old will get you three months. Stealing a car will get you a year, which is great messaging for our teens. You know, basically saying your life and safety are worth less than a vehicle. On February 1st, 1969, Russell and perhaps a boss or co-worker or co-hustler, Dean Slaughter, made the hour and a half drive west to Medford. In the bed of Slaughter's big green truck was the hay that they were delivering. In the cabin with them was a pistol. As they got close to the Medford area, the pistol that had been stashed in the visor fell out. Upon hitting the seat, the gun fired, hitting Dean Slaughter in his knee. Russell took over driving and got him to the hospital in Medford which was some real buffoonery, if you ask me. <laughs> that would be the last place. Like, mm, a gun. Yeah, somewhere it could fall, I uh, think, would be ideal. I'm like, I wouldn't be able to be convinced that's what happened. Like, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Likely story. <laughs> well, it's what they both said, so. It could be assumed the pair had been planning on returning to Klamath Falls that same day after making the delivery, but with the owner of the truck being in the hospital, the plans changed. Hearing the news of their friend's injury, Clifford and Laverna Lowe contacted Slaughter. Oh, the irony of that name. Via their connection to Slaughter, the Lowe's crossed paths with Russell. The 48 Hours episode about this case stated that Russell ended up staying the night at the Lowe residence because he and Clifford had been childhood friends. However, the case documents make it seem as though it only happened because Cliff and Dean were friends and it was kind of a, hey, could you take care of my friend for the night situation. Either way, the Lowe's offered their home at 2509 Gould Avenue to Russell until he could get the hay delivered and take Dean back to Klamath Falls. The Lowe home wasn't exactly a calm and quiet environment. Laverna and Clifford were actually newlyweds, married less than a year, making Cliff a new stepfather to 13-year-old Ken, 12-year-old Pam, 8-year-old Becky, and Michael, who was the oldest. And there was one other unlisted child. The family wasn't done growing either. Laverna was eight months pregnant with their first child. To those who saw how much Laverna loved being a mother, it wasn't surprising she had such a large brood. She was a stay-at-home mom who, like a paper towel commercial, was always baking cookies and never let the children leave for school without a kiss goodbye and an I love you. For the entire Lowe family, the new baby, new marriage, and new home were all the start to a fresh chapter in their lives. Everyone seemed happy and content. That was until Russell Obrimsky showed up at their house on the first. What is it with Russells? No shit. (laughs) In the beginning, the kids thought Russell was a funny guy. He was happy to tell silly jokes to get the kids to laugh, but very quickly the vibe changed. Being so young, the kids didn't have the language to describe their concerns. There was just something about how he looked at them. It was like he was looking through them. They felt uncomfortable and like they couldn't trust him. 
he just gave them the creeps. It wasn't clear how long Russell would need to stay at the Lowe's or if he had made his intentions clear with a, you know, I'll be gone in three days type of conversation. He stayed the night on the first and second. On the third, he was no longer in the house. Instead, he had begun a killing spree. February 3rd was an extremely cold day in Medford. The high was just 36 degrees. Being only eight years old, Becky was the first low kiddo to get home from school. Coming in the front door, she probably expected to find her mother waiting with cookies or a hug. Instead, she found her 36-year-old, eight-months-pregnant mother laying on the couch. Getting closer, she saw that Laverna's head was leaning into the couch cushion. She was wearing a white house dress that was now painted with blood spray. Laverna had been shot in the head four times with a 22 caliber pistol, just like the one Slaughter had been struck with in the truck, which is where the gun had supposedly been kept after the accidental shooting. Laverna and her unborn child died nearly instantly. And I, of course, Emily, I don't know about you or Josh, I can't hear about a nearly full-term pregnancy ending in such a manner and not have a wonder if there was a coffin birth. Oh, yeah. Which, those are incredibly rare, and it's not to be morbid or disgusting, but it's just, you know, or if she had been found earlier, could the baby have survived? I just have... What is that? I've never I've never heard that term before. So, um, it's very rare. Like, I don't even know the stats. It, there are times where if someone is very far along in their pregnancy and they die, the body kind of expels the baby. So, like, they've, they've found it in old tombs, like doing exhumations and stuff, um, or even, like, I think one of the more recent ones like was in Egypt or something and they find like small bones like where the baby would have been born. Wow. That is an appropriately ghoulish term. Yeah. Maybe not ghoulish, but well, sad. kind of. Oh, yeah. It's very direct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Boy. So it, it really doesn't happen that often, but, um, you know, it makes me wonder. And then it's like, okay, well, if she was shot in the morning, if someone had heard it, could they have come, you know, even could if she was saved? dying, yeah. could she, you know, and that's not like a pro-life No, I think thing, a, lot of, just... a lot of listeners probably have the same thought because I, I did a case where the boyfriend murdered the woman mm -hmm. and then even stabbed her right. in, in the in the belly. Even people were asking, well, was the baby okay? I'm like, well, no. no. Did you hear the case yeah. and what he was stabbing her with? Yeah. But I mean, it's a valid thought. And I mm -hmm. think most people think that when they hear a pregnant woman is murdered. Yeah. Which which case was that in? Hearts and something. Oh, yeah. Hearts and death. Yeah. Yep. Police were called to the house. With the pull of a trigger, the Lowe family, who had been so keen on becoming a complete family, was destroyed. The children were motherless, left to live with their stepfather. Their mother was gone, as was their expected sibling. Also gone was Russell. As an official suspect or not, police wanted to speak with him regarding his whereabouts that morning. Since they couldn't find him yet, detectives interviewed neighbors. They helped to narrow down the time of death, as some claimed to have heard screaming, gunshots, and even saw Russell leaving the low home in the green truck after noon. They also spoke with Cliff. As we know, one of the leading causes of death for pregnant women is homicide. In fact, 34% of female homicide victims are murdered by their partner or a former partner. Police were able to confirm Cliff had been at work, so he was cleared. With Cliff excluded, they felt certain Russell had been the killer and a manhunt ensued. As the most wanted man in the West, he was considered armed and dangerous. Because this was the late 60s, there weren't alerts sent to phones or messages scrawled across illuminated signs on the freeways. If you weren't a cop or watching the news, you wouldn't have been privy to the warnings of just how dangerous this man was. 
Thanks to COVID, we all learned a lot about pandemics and the flu of 1918, which echoed a multitude of issues that arose with coronavirus. In 1968, there was a lesser-known pandemic. Don't worry, people were still racist and awful about it, dubbing the bird flu variation the Hong Kong flu, as it originated in China. It is believed the pandemic of 68 was a subtype of the virus that caused the 1957 pandemic. Because of that, more people had already built up an immunity and there were far fewer deaths. Worldwide, between 1 and 4 million people died, which seems like kind of a big difference in numbers. The death rate was due to the virus being highly contagious, and then it was the first pandemic post-commercial flights, allowing for worldwide spread. Like COVID, it did affect older folks more strongly, and this strain eventually left 100,000 Americans dead. Side note, I think my favorite photo from this pandemic isn't the nurse in front of a sign saying that the hospital can't have visitors or the one of the students and the policemen getting vaccines. It's definitely the huge billboard that reads, Hong Kong flu is un-American. Catch something made in the USA. Oh my Which is a real God. photo that will be on our blog because my jaw drops. That is ridiculous. Die from something here like guns, <laughs> you wuss. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> wow. It's un-American. Hmm. Lord. It's good to know things haven't changed. I feel like the more American way to go would be syphilis in that, in that time frame. <laughs> it was a lethal dose of crabs. <laughs> Caught it at Woodstock. Betty was stopping at the West Main Pharmacy to get her sons, Bob and Bill Ritchie, aged 16 and 11, medicine as they had both caught the flu on the tail end of the pandemic. The boys weren't feeling totally lethargic, though, so they had gone with her to the store. When Bob volunteered to go in to grab the medication, Betty was happy to let him do so. Bill, of course, couldn't miss an opportunity to look at the toys, so he joined his brother on the adventure. Born Betty Christensen in California on August 28, 1934, Betty was a young divorcee. To pay the bills as a single mother to two young boys, she was a checker at a local retail store. An article did have her listed as a widow, but her death certificate was marked divorced, so it's unclear what led to the end of that relationship. Sitting in a parking lot on the other side of town from where Laverna had been killed just a few hours prior, Betty was blissfully unaware of the dangerous man lurking through Medford. With her two boys inside, she was probably enjoying the few moments of quiet bliss that she was being granted. When the boys came out from the store, medicine in hand, they were confused when their mother's red Chevrolet wasn't parked where it had been. Looking around the lot, they didn't see any sign of their mother or her car. All they saw was a large green truck. It was parked and running. Unsure what was going on, the boys decided to walk home. Maybe their mom had had an emergency or needed to go help a friend. After two hours and no sign of her, the boys called the police. Given the proximity to Laverna's home, the pharmacy being just four miles southwest from it, and the green truck being left behind, authorities knew Betty had been taken by Russell and that they needed to find them fast. The biggest issue when it came down to starting the search was choosing a direction to start looking. From where they were, Russell could have driven west to the I-5. He could have gone south to California. He could have gone any other direction and been out in the wild. Thankfully, several people saw Betty's red car and the occupants inside of it. One witness was so disturbed by what they saw, they called it into the police. And thank goodness they did, because the location of the sighting was so off the beaten path, searchers never would have thought to start looking there. 
What was reported was that a red car had been seen going up a mountain near Carberry Creek Road, which is only 34 miles southwest from the pharmacy. But it takes almost an hour to get to due to the mountainous terrain. The car was spotted going up the road on the afternoon of the 3rd. What really caught the witnesses' attention was that on the drive up the mountain, they could see that there was a man and a woman inside the vehicle. When it was returning down the mountain, only a man was in the car. This helped to narrow down the search area to that of the Carberry Creek Road. All available officers and searchers were loaded up and taken there. At 2 a.m., any hopes of finding Betty alive were gone when her body was found in a ditch in that area. She was nude and had been raped before being thrown down a snow-covered hillside. Her cause of death was a 22 caliber gunshot to the head. Now that they knew what happened to Betty and had a general sense of the area Russell had been in, investigators got back to trying to locate him. Once again, he had quite a head start on them as it was determined Betty had been killed any time between 2 p.m. and 10 p.m. the day before. Tracking the car, detectives were able to find a witness who had seen Russell enjoying a beer in a tavern not far from Medford around 6 p.m. the evening of the 4th. The next day, the police were called when some surfers at a beach in Monterey Bay, California, saw a nice red car in a parking lot. As they walked past the vehicle, they looked inside and saw blood everywhere. Russell must have driven most of the night as Monterey Bay is an almost eight-hour drive from Medford. The police were called when the blood was spotted, but Russell was gone before they arrived. He only got as far as Santa Cruz, though, which is 45 miles away, before another call was made to police. It was reported that a man in a red car with Oregon plates had, quote, tried to pick up someone. And I'm not sure if that means a hitchhiker or pick up like a bar for romantic purposes, but he did attempt to get someone into the car. He then pulled out the pistol that had shot Slaughter and killed Laverna and Betty. Thankfully, that person was able to escape unharmed. The police were able to track down the car with Russell behind the wheel. At first, he didn't stop, but eventually he pulled over. He wasn't willing to show his hands when he was being told to do so, so the officer pulled out his shotgun. Holding it to Russell, he finally gave up and got out of the vehicle. Looking inside, the officer saw the pistol lying on the driver's side floor. This allowed him to arrest Russell on an illegal gun charge, one of many charges to come. That officer in California wasn't even aware of who Russell was or that he was wanted in Oregon. He was just responding to the report of him holding a gun to someone. It would be half an hour before the notice of Russell Obrimsky's status would come through to California. That's actually faster than I would have anticipated. Oh, yeah. Thank goodness they had some sort of wire and not like actual mail or yeah. something. The monthly, yeah. the monthly newsletter. <laughs> have you seen this guy? <laughs> Searching Russell's body and Betty's car, plenty of evidence was discovered. In the car, there were empty beer cans, some credit cards and papers that all belonged to Betty, women's pantyhose and two glue tubes. There was also a half-empty tube of glue in Russell's shirt pocket. With the help of an Oregon warrant, the bloodstains found in the car were processed, and they were found to be a match to Betty's blood type. Russell was arrested and charged with the first-degree murders of both Laverna Lowe and Betty Ritchie. Before the trial began, Russell's legal team tried to suppress some of the evidence, like everything found in Betty's car. The issue with that was that the car was not his property in the first place, so you can't claim ownership to the property in a stolen car. They're just trying to go for whatever they can. Yeah, throw like that I, spaghetti and good see for what them. sticks. And I do always appreciate that because I'm like, well, if I ever needed a lawyer, I would want them to be that ingenious and willing to try things. Absolutely. However, when you have gone on a murder spree, no. 
Not only can you not claim possession for items that were never yours to begin with, but because of the possession of the gun, the California police had every right to search the vehicle. Russell also made it clear he would be attempting to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Of course. The state presented its case. They had blood evidence and eyewitness testimony. They put 64 witnesses on the stand, two of which were fellow inmates. They testified that they had overheard Russell talking to another inmate, saying he had made a pass at a woman. And when he did, the woman slapped him, so he responded by killing her. It didn't say if this was in reference to Laverna or Betty, but I leaned toward Laverna because he was a guest in the house and maybe they were sitting on the couch talking and in his condition, which I will get to in a moment, he tried to get physical with her. Betty, being in the car and with people around makes me think he just saw an opportunity and got out of the area. Laverna had been shot four times in the head, which sounds more angry and vengeful. The prosecution also had doctors testify that they did not feel Russell qualified as an insane person or that he was not capable of knowing right from wrong at the time of the murders. Another witness was Clifford Lowe, and he testified to calling the house on the 3rd and speaking to his wife. The examination was messy, as the conversation, at least whatever Laverna had said, was considered hearsay. Cliff answered the questions about calling the house and what he had asked his wife, but when he accidentally said that he had asked her who was at the house and he followed up with her saying Mr. Obrimsky, the defense wasn't having it. They objected to all of it, and the judge asked the jury to disregard the last statement. That's funny because if somebody saw his car fleeing the scene, I don't think I would necessarily believe that's hearsay. That's just more evidence that he was there. But that's an eyewitness. That's different than saying this is what she told me on the phone. Right. I'm just saying it's more believable pairing right. that information with the exactly. witness. And also, if I'm ever a juror, if you think I'm going to forget oh, it's impossible. the thing that's brought up that's like, oh, uh-huh, okay, so this guy did it, that's never happening. So I guess I'm never so going to be on a jury. Don't put her on the jury <laughs> unless it's for my jury. That's right. <laughs> I'll just go, acquit. <laughs> She's just too lovely. <laughs> There's no way she committed this crime. Look at her, for God's sake. <laughs> Look at that tie-dye shirt. <laughs> She's just trying to find a boat boyfriend. Come on now. <laughs> The defense was so pissed and hoping to seize an opportunity that they actually moved for a mistrial. But the court didn't think the information from the phone call was so detrimental it would affect the case enough to qualify for one. Besides, the phone call was pertinent as it gave a timeline that matched that of witnesses in the neighborhood. When it was the defense's turn, they too had doctors, like Dr. Shanklin, who testified that he felt Russell was schizophrenic and paranoid. So how long did he have the opportunity to evaluate him? Uh, I didn't see a timeline, but I would assume just a regular amount of time for, you know, all of that stuff. I wonder what the standard is for diagnosing someone with schizophrenia, because that I feel like is a big diagnosis. That is a big diagnosis. We'll Crack about open psychology today. Let's look it up. <laughs> so on top of those diagnoses, you might recall the multiple bottles of glue that were found on and around Russell when he was arrested. That's because he had a glue sniffing habit, which he had frequently been doing since childhood. Wow. And doing so would cause him to appear intoxicated and act bizarrely. The jury was given very specific instructions about each offense. There had been a theory presented by the prosecution that perhaps Russell saw Betty as a robbery opportunity that went wrong. 
Maybe he just wanted to rob her, but then he decided to take the car, especially since the green truck was going to be all over the news and she just happened to be inside of it at the time. This would constitute a first-degree murder charge. As for his insanity defense, they gave the instructions that if you find the defendant's mental state as such, even though the result of voluntary intoxication, that he was incapable of forming the necessary purpose, deliberation, premeditation, or malice, or the requisite intent to constitute the crime charged, he cannot be found guilty of a crime involving such purpose, deliberation, premeditation, malice, or intent. The three-week trial came to an end, and the jury spent 10 hours deliberating the facts. Members of the jury later said they were able to quickly find Russell guilty in the murder of Betty Ritchie. What they struggled with was if he was guilty of first or second degree murder when it came to Laverna Lowe. They ended up finding him guilty of first degree murder for both women. That's what I was going to say. When in doubt, go for the worst one. (laughs) Exactly. I'd be in the corner. Um, Hey, guys, we're going to go with the highest thing and I'm not budging. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, Veronica If there's proof, if there's proof, if there's proof. This was the trial judge's first major murder trial. Because of the threats he had been making, Russell was shackled when in court and was unable to testify. In 1969, the death penalty wasn't available in Oregon, so Russell was sentenced to 25 to life. This was the strongest sentence he could be given. The judge knew Russell was a danger and wanted him out of society and felt, whether it be drugs, sex, or murder, Russell would do what he wanted in any given moment. Russell, of course, filed many appeals. Some were about the instructions from the judge. Some were about the gathering of evidence. His biggest complaint was about the two inmates who claimed to have heard a confession. So basically, Russell's legal team learned that the inmates had been questioned a few times and it kind of switched. They would say that they had heard a statement and then say, well, no, we didn't really hear that. So it still isn't clear what they heard. Sounds like a mistrial. Sounds like opportunity for an appeal, at least. Yeah. The families of Russell's victims tried to move on, and the world was a safer place with him behind bars, or at least until 1986. That was when the parole board first announced they would be looking at possibly releasing him after only serving 17 years. While in prison, 48 Hours was working on covering the story of Laverna and Betty and what Russell had done to them. While being interviewed, his true colors broke through. Explaining what happened the day of the murders, he said that he left the low house early that morning. He started drinking while also using amphetamines and LSD. No mention of the glue sniffing. Yeah, I was going to say, don't forget the glue. But I'm sure that was, he probably didn't even realize he was doing it. He probably didn't think that was an issue. That's just an everyday thing you Mm -hmm. can buy at the store. He couldn't remember everything that happened that day, but at the house, Laverna offered him something to eat. Then she said something, of which he cannot remember, that pissed him off. I would guess this would maybe be the situation overheard by those inmates, you know, making a pass at the pregnant newlywed, and she refused. So he pulled out the pistol that had been in the truck, which was now in his waistband. Rejected, he shot her four times in the head. He claimed to not be able to remember the shooting itself. He also didn't remember kidnapping Betty. In fact, he couldn't even tell you where the Carberry Creek Trail was. He even had the nerve to say he wasn't being prosecuted. He was being persecuted. Of course. That's pretty edgy stuff. Yeah, poor guy.
For the last few years, there's been an uptick in promoting self-care, and for good reason. It's so important for people to take care of themselves so that they are at their healthiest before they take care of others. This could be in the form of taking a walk, getting a pedicure, or making quiet time to read a book. For me, it's skincare. As I get older, the more I invest in my skincare routine. If only I could convince 16-year-old Emily to stay away from the tanning booth. But I can make up for how I treated my skin back then because I found protocol. I've been using protocol for several weeks and I'm loving it. What's their secret? They use a special form of retinol that was previously uncaptured by science. It's made from the same ingredient that gives bell peppers and carrots their color and is estimated to be 20 times more powerful than regular retinol. 92% of users see results in 14 days. Whether you're looking for a new serum or hydration cream or need an entire skincare system, Protocol has you covered, and it's risk-free because they offer a money-back guarantee. What's better than that? Well, Murder in the Rain listeners get 25% off with a discount code. Go to protocol-lab.com and use code MURDERINTHERAIN25 to claim your discount now. That's P-R-O-T-O-C-O-L-L-A-B.com and use code MURDERINTHERAIN25 with no spaces. Feeling he deserved the death penalty, he attempted to take his life on several occasions. He also had some issues while behind bars. He was marked for sexual activity, and I'm not sure if that means he was with another prisoner or he was in possession of porn, but something that broke the rules. He was also caught using drugs, and these offenses had happened as recently as 1991, but they still didn't have an effect on his parole matrix numbers. Families, concerned citizens, and anyone who had interacted with Russell knew how dangerous he could be and came forward to express their concerns. Like with Richard Gilmore, Russell's release was going to be based on the Matrix system. He was now a 40-year-old man who hadn't been in much trouble and had gotten off the glue. Russell had been sentenced to two life terms. Laverna Lowe's family always went to the parole hearings. In response to the victims being able to give statements, Russell didn't care about the law. Instead, he played the victim, saying that it was their chance to get revenge. Here I have a clip from the 48 Hours, just a little bit of him bitching about being an asshole. The victims would say what that is, is, is their ability then to remind the state what you did. No, it's not. It's the victim's ability to seek revenge on me. That's all it is. I'm no longer being prosecuted, Mr. Stellinger. I'm being persecuted. The victim's entry. rights isn't a victim's his victim's right is a legal way of persecuting a man that's committed a crime after he's in prison. I like Russell Obremsky. I know Russell Obremsky. I'm comfortable with him. And so are a lot of other people that know me. I'm a nice guy. That's all I got to do. Let it go. Leave me alone. I'm not bothering anybody. All I'm trying to do is do something right. They want to keep it up, keep it up. I know that I'm all right. I know that I'll never hurt anybody. I'll never hurt anybody. For those who had lost a loved one, they knew he was capable of the most monstrous acts, and his growth and record didn't matter. Petitions were signed by over 50,000 people. The prosecutor asked that he never be freed. The protests worked, at least for a couple of years. In 1986, there was a new victims' rights law put into effect, and for the first time, victims and families of could speak at parole hearings, and they would be granted access to the files. In doing so for Russell's case, someone found the board had not done their math correctly and the matrix was wrong, 
and they were off by seven years. Wow. This reset the earliest release date to 1993. Instances like this led to his release being postponed five times before November 8, 1993, when Russell Obrimsky was paroled from prison and sent to a halfway home in Eugene. 24 years. Just 12 years for each woman. One pregnant in her own home, one waiting for her children to come back to the car. Two women who were simply existing. Glue or rejection aside, a sincere fuck you to this piece of shit and the parole board. Oh, and that parole was only going to be in effect for three years. Then he was going to be totally free and unmonitored. I don't know how that's possible when, if the death penalty was going to be an option, let's say this was another state and he would have been on death row. You know, like, how yeah. does it ever change? How is it not just like, oh, life sentence is like for real life I'm loop, sentence. Loopholes, nobody really considering every scenario when <sighs> they're making laws. There are a lot of reasons. It's awful. As part of his parole terms, he would live in the halfway house with a 10 p.m. curfew and twice weekly drug testing. While in the house, there would be no threats or violence. Just like with Richard Gilmore, Russell's age, being in his 40s, was considered a benefit as he would be less likely to offend. However, he had been behind bars for so many years, he was thrown into a full-on Austin Powers montage. He had to learn how to use a microwave, a seatbelt, a washing machine, computers— And it's really kind of mind-blowing to think of all the things he wasn't around for from 1969 to 1994. I actually love reading about that kind of stuff, like inmates talking about the biggest mind-blowing thing when they get out of prison. Yeah, they actually had footage of it on this 48 Hours. It's an older, older episode, but... um, Yeah, he's like, okay, and then I do what now? Like, for the microwave, he's like, okay, (sighs) it's fascinating. When Russell was asked about the petitions against his release and how the family was continuing to fight against his being let out, he angrily said he felt that the family was doing all of that as part of a setup. In his mind, Laverna's kids were going to let him get out and then approach him so they could shoot him and say he was coming after them or attacking them. It was their plan so they could get away with what he called a freebie murder. To keep Russell busy once he was out, his social worker did what they could to get him speaking gigs at local schools to talk about the dangers (gasps) of using drugs. Local schools? (sighs) That social worker was so confident in Russell's rehabilitation, he said that if he needed, he would have allowed him to stay in his own home. Russell quickly realized he wasn't going to change minds by saying he was a good guy. He was going to need to prove it by his actions. That surely the parole board would look at the malice involved in his crimes and not let him out. However, another doctor examined him for the board and saw nothing but positive growth and concluded Russell was not a clear and present danger. As for the judge, he had concerns that once out in the world, Russell would encounter a woman, perhaps while on booze or glue, and be rejected, leading to another murder. But Russell was certain he had undergone so much drug, alcohol, and mental health treatment that he could not fail. Hearing their mother's killer would be free, Laverna's children had a variety of responses. Her daughter Pam was packing up and leaving the state of Oregon because of the parole. After all those years, she had found herself hating Russell more than ever as he was once again uprooting her life. She had hoped to stay in that area where she had grown up because she could revisit the memories of her time with her mom. Additionally, she knew he was not going to be monitored more than a few meetings a week, so even with those PO check-ins, he certainly could have found her gone to her home, harmed her, and returned without missing a meeting. The day of his release, she was on the phone with the prison, trying to learn what the plan was should he fail any of his mental health exams or if he didn't get a job. The death of her mother led to her being married thrice. 
Her sister Becky had handled it the best. For the most part, the fear was behind her. She vowed not to carry on the family trauma, so she found religion and counseling. She had been able to forgive Russell for what he did, even though the visual of finding her dead mother on the couch was all she saw when she closed her eyes for years. Looking at old family photos, Becky was able to tell if a photo had been taken before or after the murder. On that episode of 48 Hours, she held up photos of herself and her siblings all around the same time. And yes, you could absolutely tell from the lost smiles, the dim light in their eyes, the heartbreak that stretched across their faces, that pictures had been taken after they lost their mom. Her son, Ken, was over the fear but had to be away from Russell, so he moved to Alaska to be a cab driver. While he was unable to forgive him, he refused to give him any more energy. After three divorces of his own, struggles with drugs and alcohol, he was lost. He suffered from abandonment issues and was unable to maintain relationships. As a straight-A student, he had aspirations to become a jet pilot. That dream was also taken on that horrible day. As for Betty's kids, Bill and Bob moved to California. When they heard Russell's concerns about this being a long con to be able to kill him, they said, well, who would blame them? Their lives were totally destroyed after their mother's death. They struggled to build relationships with others. They were both divorced. They didn't expect Russell to bother with finding and harassing them. But if he ever did, they would plan on taking action. The anger and frustration the families of the victims were feeling was valid. Here, they had been expected to live their lives as best they could after what he took from them, but now he was getting out and being given a new life to start, while they all had to leave the lives they had created for themselves. Russell's first year out wasn't flawless. Obsessed with fly fishing, he was actually caught using a barbed hook while on the Mackenzie River and was fined $74. Other charges would follow for two separate instances, each increasing in seriousness and severity. Apparently, he hadn't been using the gift that had been made for him by another inmate, which was a badge-inspired adornment that had been marked with a star for every five years he had been imprisoned. He was told that if he ever felt like making a bad choice, he needed to stop and look at the stars, reminding him not to go back. Finding a girlfriend, Russell was looking forward to starting a new life. He had decided to propose on Valentine's Day in 1994 while the couple enjoyed the beaches of Florence, Oregon. As part of his parole, Russell was not to partake in any use of drugs or alcohol. To help him stay straight, he had completed drug treatment, was going to a counselor, and was taking the drug antabuse, which causes extreme nausea when combined with alcohol. Hoping he would get a yes, he skipped his pill that day. When he got the answer he sought, the newly engaged couple walked across the street to a convenience store and purchased two beers. They weren't planning on getting wasted. They just wanted something to toast with. And nothing says romance like a couple of brewskis. <laughs> say, there was no champagne. Like... <laughs> because he had been taking the antabuse for so long, it was still in his system when he drank, leading to a night of hugging the toilet. Good. This was not going to be Russell's first walk down the aisle. Somehow, through his time in prison, he was able to find multiple women who wanted to be married to a mother killer. Russell married his first wife, Lisa Skeen Bauman, in 1976. They were divorced just two years later. It's possible that divorce had been caused by infidelity as the split took place in April and he was married to Barbara Bonewitz in July. I couldn't find when he and Barbara split, but he eventually married Stephanie Gaino Freeman in March of 88. Trying to be an honest parolee, which sounds nice until you remember how brutally and in cold blood he killed two mothers, he admitted to the drinking of one and a half beers to his P.O. Usually a violation of parole at this level would be something like a month in local jail. 
So imagine Russell's surprise when he admitted that he had consumed the beers, which he then puked up, and it was met with backlash. Russell wouldn't have time to worry about the outcome of his drinking violation because in early March, the 48 Hours episode came out. When that aired, he was fired from his livestock job in Eugene. In late March of 94, he was shocked when officers arrived at his halfway home and he once again found handcuffs around his wrists when he was charged with molesting a four-year-old girl. Even those who disagreed with Russell being paroled or thought he was a horrible monster were surprised by the allegations. Sure, he was a glue-sniffing sociopathic killer who struggled to have the capacity for remorse, but sexual abuse of a child and a four-year-old? That just didn't seem like it was in his range of crimes. Russell did not enter a plea when he was first arraigned. He was sent to jail without bail under the charges of sex abuse and sodomy. The charges claimed this occurred in March when he was babysitting the four-year-old and her nine-year-old friend. The claim was that Russell had walked the four-year-old to a footbridge. Once across, they went around a log. There, she claimed Russell licked her genitals and showed her his, quote, tails with whiskers around it. Ew. I never want to hear that again. I know, right? For Russell, he felt this charge was due to two things. One was that it was an election year and some government officials who were seeking office, especially Republican Denny Smith, were using his story as an example. Denny's platform was focused on crime and how criminals can't be reformed, so parole should basically be abolished. Having the example of Russell Obrimsky, a man already loathed for his freedom, committing such a heinous crime was a dream for Denny's campaign. Another theory of Russell's was that it was his new fiancé's family that had made the false claims, as the girl was his fiancé's niece. Russell felt his partner's family didn't want her to be with him. I can't imagine why. That's kind of where my mind went by. Like, I agree, it's kind of out of the realm of his previous crimes. Yeah. And I'm thinking, if he's engaged to someone, I wouldn't want my daughter marrying him. Right. And if he has any slip-ups like this, he's gone. He'd get locked away. Exactly. So if you're hoping to get that person away from someone, that's one way to do it. Yep. Pretty despicable, but I can understand. Right. Yeah, you're doing it for the safety, but yeah, that's really horrible, especially to if you talked the kid into saying those things. If if it didn't happen, that's really gross. Russell's future brother-in-law said he didn't think anything had happened because he had seen Russell interact with the child in question, and she didn't appear to be acting any differently than she had been previously or any different from the other children. She was playing, having fun, and the brother-in-law assumed that she would have been maybe standoffish or distant towards him, which is fair, but I don't think that's I don't kind think of an end-all, be-all. Exactly. Yeah, you can't measure anything off that, really, but yeah, he, he's saying he wasn't a red flag to exactly. him. Exactly. During the 12-day trial, Russell took the stand. While testifying, he slammed his hand on the bench, denying he had done anything of the sort. He did claim that during the outing, he told the girl that if she didn't behave better, he would, quote, hit her a good lick on the butt. So he felt that she had maybe mixed up the words, and that's what she told the investigator, her mother, and a counselor, that Uncle Russ licked my butt. The girl had been shown to be too young to take the stand, so she wasn't questioned. When the trial concluded, the jury had hoped they would be able to send him back to prison for life. They hated this guy and were desperate for any evidence that proved that any of this had taken place so he could be found guilty. But there just wasn't any. Seven hours later, he was acquitted. This outcome only caused more outrage. But that's how the judicial system works. You can't be charged for your past, even though it is so often used against people. 
Free from the sex abuse charges, Russell still had to deal with the ramifications of drinking at his proposal. In an article about his being found not guilty, Michael Pacheco, the parole board's vice chair, said he would probably receive no more than 90 days in jail if he was found to have violated his parole with those beers. In December, one year and one month after his initial release, Russell went back to the parole board. When they first released him, they gave him the warning that the use of drugs or alcohol would be unforgivable. He worried that even though he had been acquitted of the sexual abuse, those charges would also be enough to maybe revoke his parole. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. However, the two old English beers were. The beers were a major issue because he had been drinking the day of the murders and had even used his inebriation as a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. So that original warning was dire. Russell had been given a chance to be free, and in 1994, opinions and knowledge about killers was a little different from the late 60s. Combining that with the continued law and order politics of the time, it led to a shocking decision. Knowing the outcome, Russell Obrumsky said he wished he had known his freedom would come to an end with a beer, and he would have done it with something good like a Budweiser. But they, okay, that's funny, but but also they did tell him. Right. Yeah, that's the whole reason. It's almost like he likes to be the victim. Yeah, it sounds like it. The court was not concerned with the make of the beer. On that one violation, his parole was revoked and he was sent back to prison. This time, any future opportunity for parole was taken off the table and he was forced to complete the double life sentence. Pam, Laverna's daughter, had already settled into her new life in Reno when she heard that Russell would be going away for life. She had no plans on moving back to Oregon though she was quite relieved that she wouldn't have to attend any additional hearings. On November 17, 2005, Russell Obrimsky died from natural causes in the hospital. The only other man to serve more time in the Oregon State Penitentiary was the notorious Jerry Brudos from Emily's Junkyard Shoes episode. It's hard to say if justice was served here. His release caused stress and disturbance for the victim's family members, And he did die behind bars, but only after being sent back on what could be seen as a politically driven technicality. Before Russell died, he was approached by detectives who had a favor to ask of him. Just as the men had done at his first murder trial, he was being asked to talk to a fellow inmate to get a confession. In the end, it would be another prisoner who would get the dirt on Dwayne Little and his connection to one of Oregon's most infamous unsolved cases, the Cowden family murder. I'll be talking about that prisoner and Dwayne Little in my next few cases so there you go life sentence for some beers i mean nobody's mad at it the rule is a rule listen i i defend him when it comes to the child molestation because that gives me the same vibes that right i don't think they had enough on him right but when you purposely break your parole rule you know that's a risk yeah yeah so i i guess what my issue is it's like Oh, for that he'll serve those times? Yeah. That's yeah, it's that's frustrating. the thing. It's like, okay, so the women's lives, they were worth a couple years each, but for those beers, like it's almost laughable. I like why re- put him back? I mean, thank goodness they did, and I'm so glad he like got that life sentence. I think I get frustrated at the lackadaisy nature of parole boards. Yes. Um I know there's overcrowding and sometimes they have to make decisions, but it always feels so wrong. How when is they it let these people out? How is it we can find like 10 cases of people wrongfully convicted or the the evidence wasn't right or something was flawed yeah. or they weren't violent or whatever yet you let and they these... don't come out but this guy they're like yep. okay guys sorry we know there's a petition but we got to do it. 
Yeah. What? Well, in California in particular has been bad in recent years, too. So I, it's just really, I think it's really frustrating, especially when you think about all the public at risk. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're putting some legal mumbo jumbo ahead of people's lives. Yeah. You have a judge and a prosecutor going, this guy is dangerous. You really can't just set that file aside and go, ah, we'll get to it at 25 years. Or get him some more evaluations or, you know. Yeah, like why the effort to look at it early? You've got plenty of people that should be out. You start with those low-level offenders, too. Like, let them out. Yeah. It's it's one of the things that pisses me off the most. Yeah, it's really upsetting. So, yeah, he just couldn't make a good choice, I guess. (laughs) Thank goodness, because it got him back in. It is kind of funny that two beers got him back in. I'm like, you deserve that. Yeah, and I do love that he's like, oh, if I'd thought about it, I would have had a Budweiser. So get a Coke. Like, Cokes are good. I don't drink them all the time. Like, You need something to toast? I've toasted with juice, water, a popsicle. It's silly. It is silly. Yeah. That was his call. Yep. He got what he deserved. Yep. It's really funny. The 48 hours, while it is old, and and I'll put the season info and stuff in in the blog, but... It's just the pity party for him. No matter, he can find a way to twist everything to be like, well, I didn't, uh, but I didn't, bless you, but I didn't know, or I didn't, you know, I was honest with you. I told you I had the, I could have just not told you that I had the beers, you know? Yeah, I get that. He didn't like have he's to, some but sort you of hero. did, you dumb dumb. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, like to prove, oh, I'm such a good guy. And no one's going to side with you. You murdered two people brutally. Yeah, especially when you know that you have that much public outrage. This isn't just a case that the couple members of the family are aware of and they're upset about. You have a full-on petition and like high-ranking government people that are pissed about you being out. And you're like, I just have some beers. <laughs> yeah, it's... I don't know. It's I'm it's a happy ending for me. Yes. I'll give you that. Oh yeah. But... Yeah. Uh Mumbo Jumbo. Uh we can't say Mumbo Jumbo. Oh. Because it's racist. I didn't know that. Oh. I didn't either until just now. Do we need to No, I think we can leave this in here to educate. Yeah, we people. leave this in here. It's totally oh, okay. cool. What's yeah. the history? Uh let's see. So Do this I dare? is a Yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's a um All right, here. Let's see. It's someone someone wrote in a letter to I don't know what newspaper this is. Uh, in reaction to a review of an old book from 1899 called The Story of Little Black Sambo. Oh, and Sambo ain't out. I should have known. I know Sambo. Sambo's, Sambo's parents are named Mumbo and Jumbo. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so I didn't is either. that where that saying is derived from? I, I think so, yeah. And like I said, my next uh, two cases will be sort of connected to this, not officially, but just uh, more stories of parole choices. Looking forward to that. I bet. (laughs) Take your blood pressure meds. I don't take blood pressure meds. I need some. Just kidding. Fuzzy Wuzzy is racist. Oh, shit. It references uh, black people's hair. It was used in a Rudyard Kipling poem, a noted racist. Oh, Oh, there you go. They have to ruin it for everyone. Rudyard. So. All right. We learned something. Hi, my name is Emily Rowney, and I like boats. <laughs> Good luck, ladies. Thank you. And me. <laughs> As a teen, he got involved in the fee fee-h. Wow. On the cusp of adulthood, he began having rub- rub-ins. Ooh, <laughs> I like the way this is going. 
I should have I love had a good rubbin. I needed more protein from my brain. And a good rubbin. Can I get a rubbin? Oh boy. Front rub. Ah. <laughs> Reminds me of an episode of Suits. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, do. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I, I have to make a choice if it's worth interrupting it's you. It's always worth it. <laughs> it is always. I'm giving you explicit permission across the board for both of you. <laughs> it's always worth it. I can go back and read. The joke will be gone forever. <laughs> Good point. Was there a second person with uh, an Don't interrupt me. <laughs> with an O name? Was there, there was an O Stevenson and an O something else? Uh, so it's Russell Obrimsky and then William O. Stevenson. But okay. the O is like his middle name, not O. Stevenson. The O is silent. Ah. Yes, the O is silent. <laughs> William Stevenson. Gross. <laughs> oh, it's actually not the letter. It's just a... A breath? It's just a, yeah, it's a sound. Ooh, that'd be great. You know, when they're the weird kid names, like that would be a good one. Just it's O and it's like, no, you don't say O. It's. <laughs> My son's name is. <sighs> giggity, giggity. Oh. Um, next in line is exasperated sigh. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, my name's a homophone. <sighs> oh, man. Good stuff. Homophone joke. Therefore, they requested, requested, am I saying that right? Yeah. It sounds insane. Isn't that funny how that works? Requested. I feel like I'm forgetting a constant. it is accurate. Oof. Accurate. On February 1st, 1969. (laughs) Nice. On February 1st, 1969. Nice. I already gave you the get it out of the way one. I didn't bring a swimsuit. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I inhaled funny. Never mind Can't my joke. Your boat. <laughs> Never mind my joke. All right, here we go. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sidetrack central. Well, yeah, choo choo. I just love talking pandemic. I know. You want to hear about this virus? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Searching. Uh, <clears throat> Yearning. <laughs> Hoping. Loving, touching, squeezing. Na, 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 Love that song. Me too. I could go for another chorus and verse and half of the na-na's, but, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. It's one of my favorite Journey songs. Me too. Oh. Wow. I'm just saying, if I'm guilty, guilty. Yeah. I just am looking for the best deal I can get. Oh, good to know. I'll play this for your lawyer. <laughs> I had a doctor named Shanklin when I was growing up. What was their, what kind of doctor is Same he? Same one. A uh, psychologist. Well, I, well, I'm sorry. What was his first name? Doctor. Oh. I don't have, I don't have it written here. Probably not the same it's guy. Pretty, <laughs> I mean, that's, does, that seems like a and it was, one of a kind Oh, name. but he was up in Oregon, not California. But And mine was a dentist. Oh, oh, that changes. Was he like, you know, Josh, this third cuspid has me thinking you might be schizophrenic. schizophrenic. Now, they don't know this, but this is how I diagnose schizophrenia. (laughs) Everyone I've ever diagnosed has the same cusp. Uh, Dr. Shanklin looked like that dude. I don't know if you guys know Intervention very well, but the guy. I love that show. The interventionist, (laughs) Jeff, the bald guy who's always chewing on something. That's exactly what he looked like. Oh, that's fun. Classic psychologist And like, yeah, very, well, dentist. But classic psychologist look. <laughs> dentist? Or dentist slash psychologist. Yeah, we talked about a lot of your... stuff. It was great. 
I told him my feelings. Tooth health <laughs> and also my insides. Uh-huh. Feelings. Oh. Ooh. About my tooth health. <laughs> okay. The, and the dreaded Five gum years disease later, gingivitis. Five years episode. You remember rubber cement? Oh, yeah. Oh, I loved so that good. one. And I remember in fourth grade, I was sniffing it. My teacher was like, listen, I don't want you to go crazy on it. It's okay to have a, a sniff or two. But we all take a whiff. You can't do it all day, okay? He was so, oh, like, nice. low-key about it. Well, because you couldn't, you're, you would be, like, drawn to it. Like, it smelled like, we've all got real drug problems, good. right? <laughs> he was actually fun. He was friends with my mom. He drove a Harley. Oh. And we went to the Blues Festival. And he, nice. he picked he me up. He knows about glue. He picked me up in one arm and my friend Cherish in the other and danced around with us. And it was so much fun. He was the best. He, he died thanks, recently. Oh, really, very sad. Oh, that is sad. Love you, Hoobline. <laughs> Love you, Hoobline. Herb Hubine. That's a, Herb? Herb Hubine. That was his name. Wow. And he played, he let me play Oregon Trail. He had a computer in his room and you get to one kid a month got 15 minutes on it and you get to nice. pick a friend. So we'd all like schmooze each other trying to get picked. <laughs> Big brother style. Yes. Listen, let's have an alliance. Yep. Take a, take a breath to reset your little mouth, please. Uh, <laughs> reset the mouth. Okay. I want to reset my mouth with some Arby's. <laughs> Can you just get like a tray of meat at Arby's? Yeah. Probably. I've ordered just buns. Oh, hello, hon. <laughs> at a glory hole. <laughs> Did you know that um, Jeff Goldblum was one of the top three contenders to play Doc Brown in Back to the Future? Oh, my God. That would have ruined him for me. So I'm glad he didn't. Yeah, it would have been not good. And then, I like to keep him sexy and not weird. Well, he would have still been sexy. And we were joking of like, that's a totally different timeline because then oh, they would yeah. go back to the fu- or back to the future. And it would just be everyone would be like inbred Jeff Goldblum because he would just travel <laughs> time and bone everybody. Yes. Forever. Oh, I love Jeff. <laughs> and Goldblum. I was like, so the whole world would just be going. Well, <laughs> ultimate zaddy. <laughs> In fact, he couldn't even tell you where the Carberry Treat Crayol. Oh, my God. <laughs> treat Crayol. <laughs> that's funny. It's a horrible name. Okay. Then a halfway house with a 10 p.m. That's my bedtime. <laughs> Me too. Dorks. Dorksville. We all live in it. <laughs> That's right. Mayors of. Show hurry up and read. I am getting so hot. I'm going to get some Arby's. <laughs> I'm hot. Let's get some Arby's. Uh, Alaskan taxi driver. It seems like you'd have He's a lot of downtime. I know. I was just thinking, I've never heard of that as a profession people do in Alaska. <laughs> That's like. You got to be a brave driver. Yeah. he's. I hope he writes a book or something. And he once again found a hen. A hen. Hen. A hen. Hen. <laughs> oh, I love making fun of each other. It's my favorite pastime. Cheers, babe. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. 
For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>